Welcome back to the Boyan Island Podcast, which is a multi-episodic journey inside the creative process behind my forthcoming book, Boyan Island, which dissects, dismembers, and reassembles my strange, frightening, and inspiring true tales as a child survivor of the accident at Three Mile Island. I'm your host, Andrew Hurst. Yes, I'm the boy in Boyan Island, but I'm all grown up now, sort of. And after 40 plus years of recollection, research, and reassessment, of unpublished memorabilia, artifacts, and stories, I'm putting it all together in an unprecedented way for all to see, feel, and hear as ultimately a means to rethink this tragedy in new, revealing, and unexpected ways. This is episode two, part five, the last leg of our journey that will finally answer how did Three Mile Island wind up in my backyard? But before we get knee deep in this episode, I wanted to share some information on what I've been up to the last few months. It's been a while since I posted anything, so I just wanted to let you know what's up. It's been an eventful summer. I'm recording this on my birthday. Um, I'll be posting it um, later than that, but it's actually my birthday. I awoke this morning in the arms of my beautiful wife, Shona, feeling very lucky and thankful. It's been about a year, almost to the day, since we moved into our house. Uh, We've also recently had our 11th year anniversary, wedding anniversary, which is amazing. And I'm still getting used to home ownership after so many years of renting that sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night startled, feeling like I've broken into someone else's place and I'm squatting there or something. But... And I realized this is actually ours. Um, it's such a pleasure to go downstairs in the morning and open the back door to be greeted by the frantic feed me meows from Clumpy, our female gray tabby stray cat that we've been feeding and looking after. She's very pretty. We spoil her a lot. She's getting a little fat, but not so much that she can still quite stealthily keep the possums skunks and other critters in line so it's all good Shona made me apple pancakes this morning to celebrate my birthday which is incredible which is such a treat as the local apples around here are really tasty this time of the year and on the kitchen table this morning wrapped in a linen cloth with a string open to see Roland S. Howard's teenage snuff film LP which Shona got for me as a birthday surprise. And I've been wanting that album for a really long time. It's a masterpiece. And you can never get enough Roland S. Howard. So so thankful to get that for my birthday. I also feel lucky that my birthday comes in the autumn, right about the time when it's about to kick in. It's my favorite time of the year. I'm a trench coat, combat boots kind of guy, so... I get to break out those clothes that I feel most comfortable in. Plus, in my life, the summer is always a time of tension and excitement, but things don't always land anywhere. But when the fall comes and I cool out a bit and get my bearings, things start to really come together. But the most significant thing that's happened over the last few months is my parents 
Anne and Jim finally decided to move into an assisted care facility out on the edge of town in Middletown. They have their own apartment and are in an independent living part of the assisted care place, but at the push of a button, they can get help, and this offers some relief for both of them. So, so far, so good. And I'm here for them, of course, throughout whatever the next part of this journey uh, presents to us. So I'm happy to be around to go through that with them. But here's the amazing part. My sister Lee bought their house, and Lee's ex-husband Tommy bought her house. Right? Isn't it crazy? This kind of real estate musical chairs can really only happen in a small town, I think. And everybody seems really happy with their new places. And the best thing is it takes the edge off of the gravity of my parents moving. And as my mom can keep her garden, and we can still gather at their former home where they still feel a sense of comfort and familiarity as they grow accustomed to their new living situation. And also, during the course of sorting through things at my folks' house in preparation for the move, I unearthed many more treasures that will be woven into the Boyan Island project. So, I've been plugging away and onward and upward towards the new pasture. story is the great tragic epic of the 20th century. If I were going to give it a theme, the theme would be humankind invents the means of its own destruction. That's Richard Rhodes, the author of the indispensable book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, published in 1986. And in its nearly 900 pages, it exhaustively details the astounding effort that the United States put forth to forcibly corral some of the best minds that have ever lived to focus their creative powers on an instrument of terror that was the physical embodiment of total annihilation. In the image of the mushroom cloud, the terrible beauty of its phantom ejaculate that had been lustfully cultivated in the damp secrecy of scientific institutions under the patronage of the soon-to-be globally ubiquitous military-industrial complex. When the U.S. deployed nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan during World War II, it was one of the most contentious acts of violence ever committed in the theater of war. And though this retaliative strike effectively forced Japan to surrender, thus ending the Second World War, the ramifications of this action left more questions than answers. In this episode, which is part five, the final leg of From Sorcery to Utility, we'll face down some of these tough questions which rightfully continue to haunt us in regards to the risks versus the rewards of nuclear energy. And we'll also bring it all back home, literally, as we unpack and explore the pressures and policies that transform atomic power from a strictly military concern 
into a source of energy for domestic usage, resulting in power plants such as Three Mile Island, which lies rotting, defunct, and decommissioned outside of my hometown of Middletown, Pennsylvania. Having lived through the accident that happened there in March of 1979, my family and I never really got to bask in the benefits of nuclear power's unlimited potential that was promised to us. Instead, we found ourselves churning in the wake of the bumbled, half-hearted gesture that spearheaded the nuclear power industry in the United States, constructed primarily as an elaborate but ultimately hollow public relations play to smooth over the infinitely lethal capabilities of atomic power. It's this fraught, paradoxical transition from the violent, weaponized military utilization of atomic energy to its domestic usage as a power source. This duplicitous desire to want to deliver the outburst and then appear eloquent and trustworthy with a well-crafted apology after the fact that I feel merits a meditation on the aggressive tendencies wrapped up inside the human condition. Like... Who or what decides when violence is an acceptable response to conflict? And what constitutes an excessive bullying type of use of force? And also, what about when the media gets involved to either manipulate or inflame the public psyche towards an unnecessarily violent perception of an event? Or downplay the severity of an event or action to control the potentially emotional and psychologically damaging aftermath? Let's take a look at some recent and some past iconic examples of what I'm talking about here. Ranging from the pathetic to irreverent to downright despicable. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, that, was a, that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh-oh, Richard. <laughs> Oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Put my wife's name out your fucking mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. I'm going to, okay? <laughs> I could, oh, okay. That was the greatest night in the history of television. Okay. Okay. That, of course, is the Will Smith uh, slap affair that happened at this uh, year's Academy Award ceremony. And it's ancient history now in terms of pop culture, but I'm revisiting this incident because it is a recent iconic example of what I'll refer to as the double dip phenomenon, in which Smith violently manipulates the Oscar ceremony, first with his physical and verbal assault, and then shortly thereafter, audaciously accepts the Best Actor Award for his role in King Richard to rapturous applause. Now, this is precisely the kind of double dip committed by the nuclear power industry in the United States, whose forceful coercion of first the science community to use atomic power as a weapon of war, and then secondly, strong-arming U.S. citizens into accepting this lethal technology in peacetime as a power source with little regard for the health and safety of the general public. But what are the consequences for trying to have it both ways? What kind of message does this send? But one thing I want to explore here is the long tail of violence 
yeah, there's the outburst, but there's also the aftermath. And in that sense, the violent action lives on. And there are other victims besides Chris Rock. Hey guys, this is uh, David Spade and Dana Carvey. And we just wanted to share a few thoughts about the other night with the Will Smith uh, Rock situation. Rock is obviously a buddy of ours and we have a common denominator, which is being bullied growing up. I was a f- certified pipsqueak. Uh, and always being pushed around. And it really hit a nerve with me and Dana. Also, and Rock had talked about it on this um, podcast. There's got to be some consequence because you shouldn't be allowed to do that. Dana? Well, first of all, um, you know, I've seen real anger and experiences. So the first thing I thought was I was triggered because everyone talks about triggers when I mm. saw a very large person go sure. go physical on a person who's not small but much smaller and that just like whoa viscerally just hit me so i saw a bully i was just taken back to my childhood and you know i when i entered high school i was five feet tall 93 pounds secondarily where was security could anyone else have gotten away with that it was very awkward they made it crystal clear that despite their fame and notoriety and all the confidence and comforts they've achieved, it does nothing to shield them from being triggered about how they were bullied in their past. But in the end, in that position, couldn't you just lean over and whisper to your wife that you love her and you think she's beautiful and give her a kiss instead of getting up and smacking somebody on national TV? Just a thought. But when you're in the moment... Uh... You've got to calm yourself. They've got to calm themselves. I'm overwhelmed. It's unbelievable. How cute. Y'all have overwhelmed me. How cute is that? You're overwhelmed. Okay, people. Okay. <laughs> what is this? It's electrifying. Calm oh. yourselves. <laughs> First of all, thank you I'm for being overwhelmed. Are oh, you thank overwhelmed? You. Oh, yeah. Overwhelming. You're very welcome. Yeah, you feel do you feel welcome now? <laughs> okay. What has happened to you? Something happened to you. I'm in love. I'm in love. That's the infamous Tom Cruise Oprah couch incident from 2005, where a love drunk or gacked to the gills on Scientology mind tricks, Cruise jumps up and down uncontrollably and beats his fists in the floor while professing his newfound affection for Katie Holmes to the ecstatic Beatlemania-like roars from the studio audience. This was spun in the media as a public meltdown, but unlike the Will Smith incident, in this case, people just kind of thought it was weird and a little bit corny. Nobody was hurt besides Cruz's reputation. But the guy was professing how much he was in love with somebody, so what's the big deal? But it alarmed many. They couldn't handle seeing him temporarily lose his grip on an otherwise carefully and strategically manicured public persona. We always act like we want to see behind the scenes the lives of celebrities and stars, but it's almost like 
when we get a chance to actually see beyond the surface. And sometimes what we see actually feels too real, that we actually want the fake version instead. And you know something? You know something? Not only are we going to New Hampshire, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. And we're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! Now that, of course, is the infamous Howard Dean outburst. Now, Howard Dean was the governor of Vermont from 1991 to 2003. And this event happened during his campaign for the 2004 presidential election, in which he was considered by many to be somewhat of a front runner for the Democratic Party. But once the media picked up on the sound bite and ran with it and played it over and over and over and over again. The Dean campaign couldn't get out ahead of it, and it basically spelled the end for him, as he was painted as some unpredictable monster. This became an iconic instance of extreme media bias, with certain news agencies admitting they had intentionally repeated the sound bite for maximum negative effect. But the damage had been done. Ready for more bully stuff? Yeah! And like a typical teenager, part of Antonio Delotero's morning routine, checking his social media. But when it comes to Twitter, this 16-year-old junior class president is not at all typical. He seems to have made a very powerful enemy, Donald Trump. Dubbed the tweeter-in-chief, Trump's use of Twitter prolific and provocative. His megaphone aimed not just at the powerful, but at individual citizens, like Antonio who dared express a teenager's dissent in one tweet. I call them a reject Cheeto. Yes, you heard that right. A reject Cheeto. The tweet got thousands of likes and retweets and a lot of hate. And then he was blocked by the real Donald Trump. How do you interpret this man, President of the United States, blocking a 16-year-old high school student? I thought, okay, you know, my, my tweet was definitely immature. It was... Weird to have him block someone. And he's far from an isolated case. It was tweets from that personal account, plus campaign rhetoric like this. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. We have to have a temporary ban on Muslims coming into this country. That spurred the then 15-year-old American, who's half Middle Eastern, half Cuban, to vent his frustrations on Twitter. As a Hispanic American, you took that personally? Mm -hmm. I did, yeah, for sure. It's, you know, two groups of people he has viciously attacked over his election, and uh, it obviously angered me. Of course, 16-year-old Antonio has very little in common with conservative radio talk show host Joe Walsh, except one thing. The former Republican congressman and vocal Trump supporter says he's been blocked by Trump since fall of 2015 after criticizing his comments. What's so ironic is that's what Trump says he does. He says what he believes, good or bad. You would think that he would respect somebody who says what they think. I will say this again as a Trump supporter. Mr. Trump, if you're listening, uh, he is way too 
thin skin. Now, this clip here is taken from the early period of Donald Trump's presidency, and it's the tip of the iceberg of what would come later. But I wanted to include it because it, it broadens the conversation about bully tactics, which are somewhat par for the course in American bully pulpit politics. But this clip is insightful and priceless for not only the reject Cheeto bit, but mostly because it shows what I've always known, that bullies can't handle being bullied back. And they invent reasons or ways to inflame their followers into thinking that someone or something is marginalizing them by manufacturing a kind of moral confusion, which disallows any kind of nuanced dialogue to occur between people. And also, Twitter? Really? Don't get me started. But this manufactured moral confusion and divisive rhetoric can be transformed into real physical violence. Who hides evidence? Criminals hide evidence, not honest people. So, over the next 10 days, we get to see the machines that are crooked, the ballots that are fraudulent. Let's have trial by combat. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building. Stephen Trump, we are still taking metal, sharpened objects, missiles to include bottles and rocks and hand-thrown chemical grade fireworks. This is now effectively a riot. So, if we're wrong, we will be made fools of. Yes, indeed you will. In a terrible and unfortunate coincidence, while I was recording and preparing this podcast, this happens. Central Pennsylvania High School has canceled the upcoming football season as it investigates several alleged incidents involving hazing. Cell phone video from earlier this month appears to show two players from the Middletown Area High School football team in Dauphin County restrain a teammate and use a muscle therapy gun and other athletic equipment on his backside. That video came on the heels of an investigation that was already underway because of a separate hazing incident. The Middletown Area School District says it will work to find other opportunities this fall for the cheerleading team, the marching band, who are also now being impacted by the season's cancellation. Now, football in this neck of the woods is a very, very, very big deal. So for the entire season to be canceled is catastrophic and unprecedented and for very good reasons the local district attorney has since sentenced 10 teenagers with multiple charges including criminal attempt to commit involuntary deviant sexual intercourse indecent assault unlawful restraint simple assault and hazing now i played football for middletown and was the starting left cornerback for the varsity squad of the class of 92 and i'm deeply disturbed by this turn of events and I've racked my brain to try to remember any of this hazing bully type of behavior. And I don't remember being bullied particularly or witnessing anything even remotely close to this type of thing occurring. But I've never participated in bully behavior. And I wasn't raised in an environment where anything like this was tolerated. My parents didn't speak or behave aggressively towards each other. And my dad didn't bully me. So I feel very fortunate and lucky that I'm a product of this upbringing. 
I think bullying is a learned trait. And if you are a product of a violent environment, one tends to perpetuate this and bring it with them forward. So, young men, leave it on the field, please. Main engine start, four, three, two, one, and liftoff, liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower.
So the 25th space shuttle mission is now on the way after more delays than NASA cares to count. This morning, it looked as though they were not going to be able to get off. One minute, 15 seconds. Velocity 2,900 feet per second. Altitude 9 nautical miles. Downrange distance 7 nautical miles. Looks like a couple of the uh, solid rocket boosters uh, blew away from the side of the shuttle in an explosion. Flight controllers here looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. We have no downlink. We're awaiting word. They're holding their breath just, I'm sure, as everyone else is. You saw it just a few moments ago, about 45 seconds after liftoff, a huge fireball in the sky. We have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. Flight director confirms that. We are looking at uh, checking with the recovery forces to see uh, what can be done at this point. On January 28, 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded on live television, killing all seven crew members, including school teacher Krista McAuliffe. I was 13 at the time. Most kids were tuned into the TV in their classrooms at school, especially so because of the pride and excitement that the teaching community felt for Krista McAuliffe, which quickly turned to sorrow and disbelief. The unique aspect of this tragedy for me is that I happened to be homesick from school and witnessed the event alone. I remember getting that cold sweat and numb disbelief at what I was seeing. I was also kind of relieved that I didn't have to be at school to see my teachers crying at the sight of it, as it's always especially traumatizing when you're a kid seeing adults cry uncontrollably. But because I was by myself, I didn't quite know what to do. I remember touching the TV screen, trying in vain to push the broken pieces of the space shuttle back together again. I felt like Heather Rourke in that scene from Poltergeist as I absorbed the image and the image absorbed me. Hello. Here. Almost exactly one year later, on January 22nd, 1987, Pennsylvania State Treasurer Bud Dwyer, who was convicted of bribery charges and due to be sentenced the following day, held a press conference on live television. After professing his innocence, he took a 357 Magnum out of an envelope, put it in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. When I... And I... No, no, no. Please leave the room if this will... Most TV stations froze the image prior to the gunshot, but not mine. WHTM, a local Harrisburg channel, broadcast the footage uncut, and I saw it, and I can never unsee it. Sometimes, no matter what, violence finds you.
Far back in time, back before there was an Earth, there were flaming fireballs in space. We call them stars. And there are millions upon millions of them. Each star, like our own sun, is a raging nuclear furnace that shoots out showers of particles too tiny to be matter as we conceive it, along with invisible forces that we call radiation. This radiation and these particles travel through space at fantastic speeds until they strike some other matter which may make new flares of radioactivity. They strike wandering asteroids, moons, and planets such as our own. Everything in space, Earth included, receives this radiation. Skies partly cloudy this afternoon, clearing by... Background radiation is all around us in tiny quantities. Nature even planted unstable atoms deep inside the Earth itself. They decay one by one, here and there, in a barrage of inconceivably small and silent explosions. Each explosion is another spark of radiation. All life on Earth has reached its present form in company with radiation from this naturally occurring radioactivity. Radioactivity. For many it has frightening implications, nuclear fallout, the long-term contamination of the air we breathe and the things we touch, the threat of genetic damage to generations yet unborn. To others it promises deliverance, powerful weapons against cancer and other diseases, a whole new range of scientific and industrial tools, renewable energy resources to replace those dwindling oil supplies. But what is beyond dispute is that the discovery of radioactivity in metallic elements like radium and uranium changed the world as we knew it. Now, here we are. We finally find our way to the star of the show, radioactivity. I love to try to say it that way. Without which, we don't have the materials to make atomic bombs or the, the nuclear power plants that would be developed later. The discovery of radioactivity, or more specifically, the ability to split radioactive elements to unleash enormous amounts of energy, effectively took science, chemistry, and physics out of the dusky realms of the alchemist's lair of the ancients and gussied it up for its big public reveal as an instrument of total annihilation for the modern age. But before the big show, there would be a series of breakthroughs that would set this new discovery on a bullet train towards its destiny. And the term radioactivity was invented by a woman who spent the later years of her life beside this quiet courtyard in the center of Paris. I can't give it up. If it takes a hundred years, it would be a pity. But I'm going to see how far I can go in my lifetime. I want to tell you about radium, a most peculiar and remarkable element because it does not behave as it should. Science is changing. And the very people who are running science are the people who believe the world is flat. And I'm going to prove them wrong. Of course, we're talking about the great Marie Curie, 
and you heard snips from the 1943 film Madame Curie starring Greer Garson and the 2020 movie Radioactive starring Rosamund Pike. Curie, along with her husband Pierre and French physicist Henri Becquerel, are credited with coining the term radioactivity after observing that certain chemical elements such as uranium could emit their own rays of energy without the assistance of an outside source. This led to their discovery of two new highly radioactive elements, radium and polonium, which was named after Curie's homeland of Poland. And alongside Henri Becquerel, resulted in their joint Nobel Prize Award for Physics in 1903. And Marie was also the sole winner of the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1911. She is the only woman to win this award in two different fields. It was breakthroughs such as these, along with Wilhelm Röntgen's discovery of X-rays in 1895, Paul Villard's discovery of gamma rays in 1898, and Georg Perth's pioneering work in radiological treatments for cancer in 1903, that announced loud and clear the promise and also the peril that radioactivity had to offer at the onset of the 20th century. The discovery of radium in particular, due in large part to Madame Curie's newfound celebrity status, caused a sensation and captivated the general public. And thus, an industry was built intent to capitalize on and exploit this luminous and dazzling element with an endless array of wondrous and rather suspect consumer items. Vanity products such as Klein's Hemorrhoid Radium Salve, Radium Brain Creamery Butter, and Tho Radia Facial Cream promise therapeutic benefits from radiation's, quote, eternal sunshine. Though many of these products contain little or no radium, mostly because of its prohibitive cost and scarcity as an active ingredient. But a handful of other products did contain high levels of radium. Two such products were invented by William J. Bailey. The scrotal radian docrinator, a kind of jockstrap to wear at night to increase male virility, which included the directions to, quote, radiate as directed, and had a hefty price tag of up to $1,000. His other product was Radithor, a, quote, certified radioactive water, claiming to cure impotence and fatigue. Famously, it killed the New York tycoon Eben Byers, who guzzled multiple bottles of the product daily, eventually dying of radium poison of the jaw, skull, brain, and internal organs. And then there's the Radium Girls. I worked in the biggest room because there were over 100 girls worked in there. And that's how you was taught every day. We never got time to talk. You were too busy to work. And if you wasn't any good, you were dismissed. And the bosses worked downstairs a lot of time. So we just figured, well, we got a little radium left in our jars. We won't, they're going to be well cleaned out. We got to get new for starting after lunch. So we take a sneak, paint our faces up and put mustaches and a couple of girls painted their ears and I just said I always did paint you know by my nostrils here and then my eyebrows and then a mustache and a chin and one time we had one girl that even painted her teeth and, leave, and held her mouth open till it dried on there see it dried and then the three of us we went in the dark room to make faces at each other see Peg's trouble started when she had a tooth pulled and it wouldn't heal. The, it was all honeycombed from the radium. The tooth never did heal. This is my sister. 
how she looked at 17 before she went to work at the radium dial. And she looked a picture of health. She was such a pretty girl. When she'd come home after work, she would lay, have to lay down and rest. I can see her walking down the street. She limped. And it all seemed to settle in her hip. Of course, it was all through her bones. My parents took her to a doctor in Chicago. He confirmed what they had thought it was. But he says, I cannot speak out and tell you because this would be the end of my career. So there was really nothing they could do. He went to a lawyer, but evidently the lawyer was bought, bought off. Couldn't do nothing for us, so Daddy said, well, just forget it. He said, we won't go any further. So what does this tell you? I don't know what's wrong with her. I'm dizzy. <laughs> My joints ache. I lost a tooth and two others are loose. Do you know what's wrong with me? Absolutely nothing. You're healthy as a horse. Where do you work? American Radium. We're dial painters. We believe that exposure to radium can cause devastating tissue damage. <laughs> radium is good for you. Everyone knows that. What does this mean for us? We take American Radium down. There's a doctor that can test if your bones are radioactive. Jesse, you sound crazy. I'm not losing my job over this. I'm scared. I'm not going back in there. Everyone put down your brushes. Radium is poison. They're trying to silence you. They must be stopped. Do you really think you can beat American Radium? I am going to make American Radium pay for what they've done. That's a clip from the 2020 movie Radium Girls, starring Joey King. And before that was actual audio testimony from some of the real factory workers. The Radium Girls painted self-luminous radium-based paint on watch and clock dials from around 1917 through the 1920s. The incidents occurred at factories in Orange, New Jersey, Ottawa, Illinois, and Waterbury, Connecticut. The workers were encouraged to practice a technique called lip-pointing placing their paintbrushes between their lips to achieve a fine enough point to paint the miniature watch dials, ingesting the toxic radium in the process. And as you heard in the clip, some of the women even started painting their fingernails and even their teeth as to allow them to glow into the evening after their work shifts. Now, the factory owners were aware of the levels of toxicity in the radium paint, but the workers were not, and this resulted in many of the women dying from hideous forms of radiation-induced cancer. I have a memory of catching fireflies at twilight in the warm summer evenings as a child, then smearing the bugs on my teeth to attain a glowing set of fangs to horrify and delight my friends. The kind of twisted innocence of this childhood caper is also tangled up with the slogan, Hell no, we won't glow! Which I would hear my parents and others chanting at rallies after the accident at Three Mile Island.
1938, just 40 years into its discovery, radioactivity reaches a dramatic milestone when German chemists Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann and Austrian physicist Lisa Miter discovered nuclear fission, which is the ability to split the nucleus of an atom into two or more smaller parts, yielding an enormous amount of energy. This discovery led to the realization that if certain radioactive elements could be held in a fissionable state in perpetuity, a process called a chain reaction could occur, producing a theoretically limitless and continuous generation of power. Chemists and physicists all over the world realized at this time the potentially awesome and catastrophic nature of the discovery if used as a weapon of war. And as if on some fateful cue, with World War II breaking out scarcely a year later with Adolf Hitler's invasion of Poland on September 1st, 1939. But just one month earlier, on August 2nd, Albert Einstein penned a letter to our President Roosevelt warning of the imminent materialization of an atomic weapon now that the scientific know-how had been conceived. Roosevelt took Einstein's advice and the race to create an atomic bomb was on.
interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. We take you now to Washington. The details are not available. They will be in a few minutes. The White House is now giving out a statement. The attack apparently was made on all naval and on naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. The president's brief statement was read to reporters by Stephen Early, the president's secretary. A Japanese attack upon Pearl Harbor naturally would mean war. Such an attack would naturally bring a counterattack, and hostilities of this kind would naturally mean that the president would ask Congress for a declaration of war. There is no doubt from the temper of Congress that such a declaration would be granted. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Japan's surprise attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, which killed over 2,400 Americans, forced the United States to enter World War II, and thus the uncompromising and stealthy resolve that is revenge, American style, was unleashed with chaotic and terrifying consequences. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our west coast became a potential combat zone. Living in that zone were more than 100,000 persons of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of them American citizens, one-third aliens. We knew that some among them were potentially dangerous. But no one knew what would happen among this concentrated population if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. Little did I know that I would replace the pigs and the cows and that type of stuff, you know, because they, uh, they restructured the fairgrounds and the parking lots into these temporary uh, hovels. And they had a hell of a lot of nerve calling it Camp Harmony. But anyway, it was, uh, boy, it was a real a traumatic type of uh, living where you're in the former stalls where uh, the pigs and the cows and everything else were. Families of six and seven were crowded into one little spot. And I just felt that all this liberty and crap was all crap. So you read so much about democracy and all this, and uh, it was a real eye-opener to see what could happen to citizens and what the citizenship mean. Because uh, it just bothered the heck out of me to think that I tried to be a good citizen and, man, they're tossing me into joints like this.
1941 turned into 42, while here in the States, we were imprisoning our own citizens in the name of national security, and Hitler doubling down on his genocidal, racist ideologies with a mass murder of European Jews in concentration camps like Auschwitz. World War II reached a crucial turning point. In June of 1942, the United States formed the Manhattan Project, constructing three massive facilities to design and build the first atomic bomb, one in Oak Ridge, Tennessee for uranium enrichment, one in Hanford, Washington for the production of a new fissionable element, plutonium, and lastly, a facility in Los Alamos, New Mexico to design and build the actual bomb. U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Brigadier General Leslie Groves was in charge of the Manhattan Project overall. And on the science end, we had theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer as the principal director of the Atomic Bomb Project. Now, the thrust and the scope of the Manhattan Project cannot be overstated, and to this day, it remains the largest construction project ever realized in the United States. And remarkably, it was conceived and operated with the utmost secrecy. If anybody asks you what you make in Oak Ridge, you tell them you're making the, uh, the lights for the lightning bugs, or that you're making the um, uh, holes for the donuts, ha <laughs> ha. In fact, many of the 130,000 people employed in the effort had no idea they were participating in the creation of an atomic bomb. But the science department of the Manhattan Project was a different scene entirely. In addition to our alliance with the Canadian and English government, the United States absorbed a treasure trove of Europe's best and brightest scientists who came to the U.S. fleeing the persecution from Hitler's Nazi regime. The persecution had already driven many prominent German Jews from the country philosophers, artists, writers, but particularly scientists, among them the world's best-known scientist, a Jew, Albert Einstein. Like Einstein, many of these Jewish scientists were also nuclear scientists. Indeed, they included some of the world's most expert nuclear scientists. And mercifully for mankind, they chose not to stay in Nazi Germany. Oppenheimer's team began arriving in the spring of 1943. It was an impressive one, eventually 5,000 strong the best possible nuclear scientists the Allies could muster. As General Groves was later to say, not necessarily in jest, here we assembled the greatest bunch of prima donnas ever seen in one place. Uh, intellectually, it was something out of this world. I mean, you had uh, the best brains in the world to talk to, to discuss any matters. You sat down for lunch and the chances were the half a dozen Nobel Prize winners will sit at the same table. There were fabulous possibilities for work. Anything we wanted had double X priority. Leo Szilard, Edward Teller, Enrico Fermi, Hans Bethe, and Niels Bohr were among the list of luminaries. Now, this was an absolute dream team of scientists that communed to build the bomb for the U.S. Never before and never again will there be such a team. 11 Hall of Famers the most magnificent assemblage of athletic talent ever gathered together on one roster in any sport at any time. Its mission? To reclaim for the U.S. the Men's Olympic Basketball Championship. The 1992 U.S. Olympic men's basketball team was such an embarrassment of riches in terms of talent that it was actually a scary thing to behold. It included Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Patrick Ewing, and Charles Barkley, among others. Enter the so-called Dream Team, Simpsons all-star defense. That'll be interesting, I think. Including Johnny Cochran, 
Robert Shapiro, F. Lee Bailey, Alan Dershowitz, and of course, his most trusted ally, Robert Kardashian. This is, of course, the legal defense team in the 1995 murder trial of O.J. Simpson, dubbed the trial of the century by many. It was also a circus-like mockery of the United States judicial system. But these dream teams were public spectacles. The dream team of scientists creating the atomic bomb under the heaviest veil of secrecy in just three years since the establishment of the Manhattan Project finally had a prototype. And time was of the essence here since it was known that Nazi Germany had the know-how to carry out an atomic weapons development program of their own. What was not known at this time was that Hitler thinking the bomb project was too costly, chose instead to focus on the V-2 rocket technology, which was rapidly advanced by his ace top scientist, Werner von Braun. But rockets and racist fervor were not enough to sustain the Nazi regime, and after a series of strategic miscalculations, Hitler committed suicide on April 30th, 1945, and Germany surrendered unconditionally on May 7th. But the war on the Pacific front raged on, then, finally, a little over a month later, on July 16th, 1945, in a secluded area of the desert, outside of Alamogordo, New Mexico, the world's first ever plutonium bomb was detonated. Brigadier General Thomas F. Farrell, an eyewitness to the event, wrote this in an official memorandum to the War Department, dated July 18, 1945. The effects could well be called unprecedented, magnificent, beautiful, stupendous, and terrifying. No man-made phenomenon of such tremendous power had ever occurred before. The lighting effects beggared description. The whole country was lighted by a searing light with the intensity many times that of the midday sun. It was golden, purple, violet, gray, and blue. It lighted every peak, crevasse, and ridge of the nearby mountain range with a clarity and beauty that cannot be described but must be seen to be imagined. It was that beauty the great poets dream about but describe most poorly and inadequately. Thirty seconds after the explosion came first, the air blast pressing hard against the people and things, to be followed almost immediately by the strong, sustained, awesome roar, which warned of doomsday and made us feel that we puny things were blasphemous to dare tamper with the forces heretofore reserved to the Almighty. Words are inadequate tools for the job of acquainting those not present with the physical, mental, and psychological effects. It had to be witnessed to be realized. But in order to continue the top-secret nature of the bomb's existence to the general public, the U.S. Office of Censorship coerced local media outlets around the area of the test site to report that the explosion was a, quote, harmless accident in a remote ammunition dump. It was assumed from its inception that the primary target for the atomic bomb would be Hitler's Nazi Germany. But with his death and their surrender, it was a foregone conclusion that Japan would be on the receiving end of the bomb's wrath. Just a few weeks after the test, on August 6, 1945, an enriched uranium bomb, nicknamed Little Boy, 
was dropped by a B-29 aircraft, the Enola Gay, detonating at 1,800 feet over the city of Hiroshima in Japan. Three days later, on August 9th, a plutonium bomb nicknamed Fat Man was detonated over the city of Nagasaki. We got into the airplane and took off. Once we were airborne and in the air, uh, I then left the pilot seat of the airplane and I crawled back into the back where the enlisted men were. I got them all together back there and we poured some coffee out of the thermos jug and I told them actually what we were, what we were doing and what we were carrying at that, at that time. And uh, the weather being clear at our primary, which was Hiroshima, there was no, no decision left. I mean, we were on the way to the primary. So that part of it was perfectly routine. As we came in uh, from our initial point to the bomb release point, uh, it was uh, again routine. There were, we were bothered uh, not in the least by any kind of fighter opposition, uh, no flak. Uh, we didn't see anything to cause us any, any concern so that we were able to concentrate strictly on the bombing problem. The uh, bomb was released. We executed our turn away as we had been directed. The bomb blast hit us. It hit us in uh, two different shock waves, uh, the first being the stronger. This, uh, as I say, was a uh, perfectly uh, unexciting and routine thing up until the point of taking a look at the damage that had been done. And then it was kind of, it was a little bit hard to realize. Uh, it was kind of inconceivable as to what we were looking at there. We passed comments back and forth in the airplane. We took pictures. And uh, by the time we had done that, I became concerned that uh, we better quit being sightseers and get out of there. And uh, we were gone and off of the coast uh, in uh, a matter of about uh, 20 minutes from the time that the bomb was released. Captain Behan, what was your most outstanding experience on this historic flight? I suppose it was when the clouds opened up over the target at Nakasaki target was there pretty as a picture. I made the run, let the bomb go. That was my greatest thrill. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. We are now prepared to destroy more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise the Japanese have in any city. We shall destroy their docks, their factories, and their communications. Let there be no mistake we shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a reign of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth.
We have spent more than $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history, and we have won. But the greatest marvel is not the size of the enterprise, its secrecy, or its cost, but the achievement of scientific brains in making it work. And hardly less marvelous has been the capacity of industry to design and of labor to operate the machines and methods to do things never done before. Both science and industry work together under the direction of the United States Army, which achieved a unique success in an amazingly short time. It is doubtful if such another combination could be got together in the world. What has been done is the greatest achievement of organized science in history. On August 14, 1945, Japan surrendered and World War II was over. But the real controversy over atomic power had really just begun. As it is often described, the nuclear genie was now out of the bottle and it wasn't ever going to get stuffed back in. But what did atomic power really have to offer? In the immediate aftermath of the bombings, the general public were, for the most part, only given access to information that largely valorized the bomb's use in World War II as a liberating factor, that in ending the war so abruptly, further mass casualties were avoided. But most Americans needed little justification for the bombings of Japan after the events of Pearl Harbor. And largely, the atomic bomb at this time was viewed as just another weapon in a total war, alongside poison gas and incendiary firebombs, etc. All this granted the United States government, and most notably the military, a convenient grace period to manicure the public's opinion and perception of atomic power, while scrambling to figure out what the hell they were going to do as self-appointed stewards of this frightening new technology. But this initial grace period would eventually give way to the cold, hard truth of what actually happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, when the New Yorker magazine dedicated its entire August 1946 issue to John Hersey's harrowing and devastating report titled simply Hiroshima, later published in a book form. In it, Hersey follows six different Japanese victims of the bombings, laying bare their testimonies with no filter. In one passage, it reads... The eyebrows of some were burned off, and skin hung from their faces and hands. Others, because of pain, held their arms up as if carrying something in both hands. Some were vomiting as they walked. Many were naked or in shreds of clothing. On some undressed bodies, the burns had made patterns of undershirt straps and suspenders. And on the skin of some women, the shapes of flowers that they had on their kimonos. Many, although injured themselves, supported relatives who were worse off. Almost all had their heads bowed, looked straight ahead, were silent, and showed no expression. In the wake of Hersey's book, a steady stream of opposition and tough questions surrounding the moral ramifications of atomic power began to emerge. Even some of the head scientists who had worked tirelessly to create the bombs felt a deep sense of remorse. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. 
persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says now I am become death the destroyer of worlds I suppose we all thought that one way or another that's J. Robert Oppenheimer considered the father of the atomic bomb his colleague Leo Szilard one of the key inventors of the bomb technology was so shaken by the destruction that was unleashed on Japan that he dedicated his life to nuclear safety issues, arms control, and prevention of further military usages of nuclear energy. But one thing is for certain, the image of the mushroom cloud sprouting upwards after an atomic bomb explosion symbolizes the grotesque and divine summation of the unprecedented atrocities of World War I and World War II combined with the fully realized achievement of an eternal symbol of man-made doom on permanent display in the executive wing of humankind's psychic museum. A masterwork of communal violence. This was militainment long before the term was coined and the ultimate embodiment of war as spectacle. This was not a figment of the imagination. This was a demonstration of a new reality, necessitating a reset or permanent rearrangement of our future déjà vu. Was this finally the achievement of the Philosopher's Stone? But instead of gold, we get a weapon of mass destruction? And thus, it is no wonder that the artful and breathtaking scientific harnessing of radioactivity in its positive applications is forever connected to, if not overshadowed, by this iconic image of total annihilation. But we can't separate these two characteristics, as we cannot completely untether the good from the less desirable aspects of ourselves. So when presented with this predicament, you gotta go for the double dip. The nuclear industry was born in the 1950s, when the U.S. government was determined to promote the civilian use of nuclear energy. President Dwight D. Eisenhower had a dream. He called it Atoms for Peace. So my country's purpose is to help us move out of the dark chamber of horrors into the light, to find a way by which the minds of men, the hopes of men, the souls of men everywhere can move forward toward peace and happiness and well-being. It is not enough to take this weapon out of the hands of the soldiers. It must be put into the hands of those who will know how to strip its military casing and adapt it to the arts of peace. Nuclear power was to benefit mankind, but the free market insurance industry was unwilling to cover nuclear accident risk because it was immeasurable and potential economic damages were incalculable. So to encourage and protect investment in nuclear power, Congress passed the Price-Anderson Act in 1957, which created an insurance pool and capped the amount of liability a commercial nuclear power plant would face should a disaster occur. And that, my friends, is how Three Mile Island Nuclear Power Plant wound up in my backyard. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Andrew Hurst. Please join me next time for the beginning of episode three, when we'll dive deeper into the Atoms for Peace program, the Cold War, and much, much more. And please go to boyanisland.com for more information on this project. 
leave a nice rating for me, drop me a line, and until next time, take care. See ya. Bye.